Welcome to the psychology of the supernatural. Why your brain favors mysticism and magic over rationalism and reality. This is the audio version of the online course presented at psychologyofthesupernatural.com. For the complete learning experience, including multimedia presentations, quizzes, assignments, peer-to-peer -peer discussion, instructor interaction, and more, enroll as a student at psychologyofthesupernatural.com. And now, your instructor, O. Bennett. How do we define supernatural? That's a very important question to answer, obviously, given the content and the name of this course. So we need to define supernatural, and more importantly, define how it differentiates between the natural. The dictionary definition of the supernatural is attributing something to some force beyond scientific understanding or the laws of nature. Okay, given that, let's divide this into two different categories. Some force beyond scientific understanding or the laws of nature. I think the best way to describe this and, and show you where this could be problematic is to set up three different categories. And these three categories can be answers to some kind of phenomenon or an explanation to some kind of phenomenon. So the first one is, I don't know. So for example, if somebody asks us, how did life begin? We could say, I don't know. And that's, making, that's not making a positive claim. That's making a, a, a negative claim. That's just saying, I, I don't know. <laughs> it, it can't be more simple than that. You are opening up the possibilities to pretty much anything by saying that. And that's very important. So for example, it could be something completely natural, part of the natural process. It could be alien life that implanted human life on Earth. It could be some supernatural being that created all of us. It could be anything. That's what we mean by I don't know. We're, we're keeping the possibilities open. Another answer is saying that I do know what it is, and it's undiscovered science. Now, that might sound a little bit strange because you're saying, well, wait, you do know, but you're saying that you don't know exactly what it is. Well, well yeah, because you're saying that it's undiscovered science, so you're making a positive claim. By saying that it is undiscovered science, you are positively claiming that it is not something we already understand or something that we could already explain, but perhaps just something you are not aware of. And that's problematic because when people say, yeah, you know what, this, this phenomenon, it's just undiscovered science, that's all. It sounds sort of reasonable, like, yeah, okay, so you're not, you're not crazy. You're not saying it's something paranormal or supernatural. You're saying it is part of nature, and it's, it's science, but we just can't explain it at this point. And it sounds reasonable, but it's not. It's not because you are already excluding all of the other possible scientific explanations. And that's a problem. Now, generally, when somebody would make a claim that something is supernatural... It's not exactly the same as the dictionary definition. They're not claiming that it's undiscovered science. If somebody were to say this is supernatural, they're making a positive claim that it is outside the laws of nature. Now, I've never heard anybody say something was supernatural and then claim to say that it is actually part of nature. It's, it's just, they just don't do that. 
when somebody does say it's supernatural, they mean that it is outside the laws of nature. It's a positive claim that they're making. And it is the most exclusive answer one could give because they are excluding the possibility that it is undiscovered science. And they're also excluding the possibility that it's something that they just don't know, something that they don't understand. Now, to give you a working example, let's talk about something like remote viewing. Remote viewing is the whole idea of being able to see, see, and I put see in quotes, what's, let's say, in an envelope or to be able to spy on other countries, their secret establishments by projecting yourself in, in some spirit form uh, through space and time. Yeah, and, and not just space, through time too. So you can go back in time and spy on Napoleon. Uh, uh, the, some of the claims are just out there. So you might think after hearing this, well, we don't know of any natural laws that could explain this. And I don't think, I, I think that might be a, a very fair statement. I can't think of any natural laws that could explain this kind of telepathy. These, these powers that seem almost magical. So therefore, it must be undiscovered science. Well, wait a minute. We're making a big assumption here. We're making, that that, we're, we're making the assumption that that phenomenon really exists, that people really can go through space and time and look at things and describe things. And that is a huge assumption. And that's the problem. The first thing we need to do before we make any kind of assumption like that and say that it's undiscovered science, we have to establish that the force actually exists. And we could do that completely within a naturalistic framework. We could do that completely within science. And when it comes to remote viewing, it, it should go without saying that science has not in any way established that such a thing actually exists. In fact, it has not found any convincing evidence time and time again that such a force actually does exist. And it is not from a lack of looking, that's for sure. Now that we define the supernatural, and we looked at some of the differences between the supernatural and the natural, let's introduce some other terms that you hear quite a bit. Paranormal and pseudoscientific. An important thing to note about all of these terms is that there is a lot of overlap. They have a lot of common things going on between them. Now let's first look at paranormal. Paranormal is an interesting term because on the one hand, it represents something that is completely outside of science, something that is a departure from the scientific process. And let's say it, it represents a certain type of person that would be involved in that, uh, kind of the fringe of reality, if you want to call it that. Um, however, Paranormal studies can be a legitimate scientific endeavor. It might also go under the name of parapsychology if you're studying the psychological aspect of paranormal studies. And what this is, it is a, a scientific effort where you're studying something that would be considered paranormal, something like telekinesis, clairvoyance, ESP. And this has been done since the 70s and before. So, for example, there are actually many paranormal researchers who are complete and total skeptics 
I think James Randi might be a good example of somebody who may consider himself a paranormal researcher or somebody, a paranormal investigator is probably a better term. Somebody who will look at paranormal claims and put them under scientific scrutiny to test their validity. So in a sense, paranormal is not anti-scientific, but it can be anti-scientific depending on how it's worded. But generally, the supernatural is more considered to be anti-scientific. Now, pseudoscience is an interesting category because, again, it is a departure from the regular scientific process. However, pseudoscience sort of masquerades as actual science. And to the layperson, it's difficult at times to tell what is pseudoscience and what is not because it's often portrayed as science. It'll use scientific jargon. It will reference studies. Again, studies is in air quotes there. And it will try to convince the public that they are using the scientific method in order to come up with their theories and ideas and so forth, if they even have theories within their framework. But a lot of times, anything that's pseudoscientific is a major departure from the scientific process. It also is sort of a conspiracy theory. Uh, a, a, lot of, a lot of things that, are, that fall within pseudoscience, there's, there's this element of conspiracy theory to it that the regular scientific process is far too rigid and unaccepting of the real world truths and uh, maybe the federal government is is complicit in hiding some of these truths from the public in some way you'll find that a lot in pseudoscience in the lesson resources you'll find an image that was created by the skeptics guide to the universe it's a great image that quickly talks about some of the differences between legitimate science and pseudoscience. So if you like, you can take a look at this image and we can go over some of the different points together and talk about them in a little bit of detail. Science follows evidence wherever it leads, whereas pseudoscience starts with a conclusion and then works backwards to confirm it. You can see where that's a problem because you already have your conclusion and it's easy to cherry pick and find the data that could support your conclusion. It's just backwards compared to how science works. Now, a perfect example of this inaction is what is called or referred to as creation science. And again, that's in air quotes. Because with creation science, creation scientists, as they call themselves, are people who start with what they believe is the truth from the Bible, that the earth was created 6,000 years ago, and then they work backwards to find the evidence that supports that conclusion. Science embraces criticism, whereas pseudoscience is very hostile to criticism. You'll see that a lot in, the, um, in any kind of web environment, any kind of uh, debate forum. If somebody is talking about the, the, newest, uh, the, the newest supplement, vitamin supplement, that's amazing and cures everything. If it is questioned, People are very hostile about it, and they won't point to any kind of scientific literature saying uh, supporting their claims. They'll just kind of fight it and attack it with many different ad hominems, and it's um, th they don't invite criticism or invite people to test it. it. It's not that kind of open environment where that's exactly what science is. Science is all about criticism. It's all about peer review, 
and having other people look at your research and replicate your data, a lot of times pseudoscience protects their uh, their research, if you want to call it that, and doesn't open it up to the public so people could actually duplicate it. So they're very hostile to criticism. Science uses precise terminology with clear definitions, whereas pseudoscience often uses vague jargon to confuse and evade. Think of auras, spirits, chakras. A lot of the terminology used are very unclear and ambiguous, and if you try to pin down a definition, it's just uh, even more confusing. Like, uh, so what is a spirit? Well, it's a non-corporeal entity. Say what? And that's a good way to just confuse people into submission and accepting your point. In science, claims are conservative and tentative, whereas in pseudoscience, claims are grandiose that go beyond the evidence. Let's take a look at two examples here that I found on the internet. The first one is a page talking about home remedies for cancer. It's talking about apricots. It says, Apricot is enriched with vitamin B17, which, as per medical experts, is essential for curing tumors and preventing the cancerous cells from spreading across the organs of the human body. As we can see, that is a very grandiose claim. Now let's have a look at a study that was done and published in an academic journal and how they word something similar. Lignans, a class of Photoestrogen commonly found in the Western diet have been linked to decreased breast cancer risks in epidemiological studies. All right, there you go. The language is very different. It's very precise. It's not talking about apricots in general. It's talking about something very specific. It's talking about uh, something being linked to and something not certainly being a cure-all. The next one is science properly considers all evidence and arguments. That's part of the scientific process is the whole debating and everybody giving their feedback in peer review process, considering all the evidence, not just specific evidence for specific studies. Whereas pseudoscience cherry picks only favorable evidence and relies on testimonials and or weak evidence. Testimonials, of course, is just somebody saying, well, I did it and it works great for me, therefore it's true. And that's similar to weak evidence. It's very common with pseudoscientific claims to go through the legitimate scientific literature and cherry pick only the evidence that supports their claim. But science does not work that way. Science does work a lot on scientific consensus. The whole point of doing studies is not just to, to make something a scientific fact after one study, but is to have many people doing similar studies, and then you look at the entire body of evidence, and you see where all the evidence collectively points, and that is a scientific consensus. That's a, a real scientific consensus. Whereas in pseudoscience, they might look at one out of 100 studies that were done that was a statistical anomaly and base their claims based on that one legitimate but scientifically or uh, statistically off study and results. So that's a problem. Science uses rigorous and repeatable methods, whereas pseudoscience uses flawed methods with unrepeatable results. 
rigorous and repeatable methods are something that uh, that are scientifically established and something that that uh, anybody could read any sign anybody with with some background training in science could actually read and create a similar study and repeat those same methods to find out if that first study that they read was flawed in some way or if they get the same results uh, usually something with um, uh, pseudoscience they may make a claim that oh we use this one person with psychic abilities uh, he had this special gift but now he's dead so you can't repeat our study but just trust us this is what happened that's pseudoscience Science engages with peers and community. And pseudoscience, they have lone mavericks working in isolation. <laughs> uh, that's a good one because that, that certainly is very characteristic of pseudoscience. It's usually one crazy guy that they try to make him out to be the Galileo of their particular brand of pseudoscience who knows the truth but nobody else does. But he, he's, he's working with some, some very... Uh, sensitive information and very confidential and he doesn't want the government to know about it again the conspiracy is brought in there science follows careful and valid logic whereas pseudoscience uses inconsistent and invalid logic i think that's clear enough and finally science changes with new evidence where pseudoscience is dogmatic and unyielding. I think the best example there is, is uh, once again, what they call creation science. Uh, it's obviously, and I think any creation scientist would admit this as well, that it's very dogmatic un and unyielding. The point is that, in, in their view, the earth was created 6,000 years ago by God. Nothing could change that. That is incredibly unyielding and dogmatic. Whereas... With science, again, you're not starting with a conclusion, you're just following the evidence. And if new evidence shows up, then your conclusion must change. That is the beauty of real science. There are two terms that we really need to define and discuss if we are going to be talking about the supernatural. And those terms are subjective and objective. When we're talking about these terms, we could talk about them in two different senses. We could talk about them in the philosophical sense, and we could also talk about them in the scientific sense. The philosophical sense has more to do with the metaphysical. Basically, it's the idea that there are objective truths out there, independent of the human mind. They're independent of interpretation. They exist whether we exist or not. This is a very controversial idea, and it's something that we do not need to get into within this conversation, because we want to focus on the scientific usage of the terms. And I'd like to refer to this also as applied, so like applied objectivity or applied subjectivity. It's applied because basically we are applying it to the scientific domain, and it's more practical. So if we think about this, everything we see or hear or taste or experience is, in a sense, subjective if we go by that metaphysical definition, because everything is interpreted through the human mind. So in a practical applied sense, we can't say that anything is objective. So the best way to understand this 
is think of objectivity and subjectivity on a continuum where objectivity is on one end, subjectivity is on the other end. And pretty much everything falls somewhere in between. Some things could be more objective than others, and some things could be more subjective than others. So what really dictates what's more subjective and what's more objective? Well, it has to do with the influence. The less influence different factors have on our interpretation, the more objective it will be. So what are these factors that can influence our interpretation? In in this course, we're actually going to be talking about many of these different factors, uh, more specific versions of these factors. But just briefly, background knowledge, personal biases, strong beliefs, stress, lack of sleep, a form of self-hypnosis, faulty senses, or even just different senses, optical cognitive illusions, memory biases, all of these things could actually greatly influence how we interpret information. So the more of these things that are at work, the more likely it is that something will be interpreted differently, and therefore what we we will say the more subjective it actually is. And objectivity can be strengthened by multiple people or tests. If we experience something, and we experience this multiple times in many different circumstances and and, uh, under different conditions, then it becomes more objective. But even more objectively, if we have other people experience the same thing or other people uh, get the same results and come to the same conclusions as we come to, then that leads to greater objectivity as well. So let me give you two examples. The first example might be measuring the distance between two points. This is probably as objective as you can get. If somebody asks us to measure the distance, then we would use an agreed upon measurement device. Let's say, forget about us being crazy Americans, let's just say that we're going to use meters. So we have a measuring device that people agree is accurate. We measure the distance between two points and say we get 100 meters. Now, if you think about the kind of factors that could influence our interpretation, there are very few of them. I mean, it is possible that we have faulty senses and maybe we can't see straight and we really, when we saw 100, it was really 10 or something silly like that. Um, But for the most part, there are very few factors that are going to influence our reading, our measurement of, of the distance. So we could say it's, it's, a, it's more on the objective scale. Now, what do we do? If we want to make that even more objective, we would take multiple measurements. We could say, all right, maybe the first time, maybe I slipped something up and I, I, I screwed something up. I didn't see something right. Uh, you can make up a lot of possible reasons why you didn't get an accurate measurement. But you do it again. And if you do it again, you get the same measurement. Then maybe you do it a third time and you get the same measurement. Now you could be pretty darn sure that your measurement is is accurate. So we're getting even more on the objective scale. 
But we don't stop there. We could even say, okay, well, you did a great job, but you may have some of these in- interpretive processes that are very unique to you, some of these factors that go into um, influencing your interpretation. So let's get other people to measure as well. So you put a whole bunch of other people out there and you have them measure a couple times and everybody gets 100 meters. So that is pretty much as objective as you can get. So that's what we consider objective in science. That's what we're talking about. Now, how about subjective? Well, I would say that when it comes to the supernatural beliefs and the supernatural in general, it's almost exclusively based on subjective data and subjective beliefs. Now, I say almost because there are some odd circumstances where there might be some something that could be considered objective based on based on a kind of group delusion or based on uh, just bad science that has been known to happen so, but i'm i'm just going to stick with almost almost exclusively in the in the subjective domain so for example if i say that i saw elvis in my bedroom last night not on tv but right there standing at the edge of my bed then that would be a very subjective experience because I was the only one who saw him. And if you think about all of these different influences, these possible factors that could influence my interpretation, then it's very clear that a lot of them are at work. For example, background knowledge. I I have to know who Elvis is, is. Strong beliefs. I I have a strong belief that Elvis is still alive, or I could say that the ghost of Elvis is visiting many people, and I think he wants to visit me. If that's a strong belief, then that's certainly going to come into play. Stress. I could be very stressed out at work, lack of sleep. Well, that that's certainly a big part of it. In fact, that's probably could account for the majority of the experience. There's something called uh, hypnopompic and hypnagogic uh, hallucinations. These are two versions of very common hallucinations that happen to many people, most of, it, most of us. I've experienced them before. Right before you go to sleep or right as soon as you wake up, you're still between uh, awake and asleep, so you're experiencing things in a dreamlike state, but you're awake and it's a, it's a really strange experience, uh, which also could be seen as a form of self-hypnosis. So there are many things that could be going on that can make this a very that that make this a, a very subjective experience. Now there's no way that other people could experience that same event that you experience. They could experience similar events at different points in time, but they can't experience that same event. It's not like taking the same measurement with uh, multiple with multiple people. Unless of course somebody was there in the room with you, but that's not the way Uh, ghostly visits usually work unfortunately and it's not very likely that one could experience the same thing multiple times at will so that's why uh, it's like it would be like measuring uh, the distance the same person measuring the distance multiple times you can't really do that these kind of experiences usually happen in isolation or maybe even once a lifetime, who knows, but it's not something that you can do multiple times. 
So the important point to remember is that when we're talking about objectivity and subjectivity, the more objective we get, the more reality-based it is, and not a problem with our subjective interpretations. And I also want to point out that when we talk about the things that go on in our mind that make us believe in these strange things and give us a sense of mysticism and magic and so forth, these aren't necessarily problems with our mind. It's just simply the way the mind works. They have their advantages. We just need to accept what actually is reality based on third-party agreement and something that's more objective versus what is going on in our own mind and something that is very subjective.